0: Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. Well, uh, today as we continue our study of the Gospel of Mark, uh, we come to one of the most detailed accounts of Jesus' authority over what the Apostle Paul calls the dominion of darkness. Now, before we look at it, I want to acknowledge that for some of us, the idea that there are spiritual beings who can possess another human being Is merely fictional. The only places we've ever seen that are in movies that are like horror films. And so we have a hard time of believing that. And it's not just because of our entertainment that we have a hard time of believing that. Um, Mark Cosper explains that culturally we're kind of being programmed away from this awareness of spiritual things. In his book, um, Recapturing the Wonder. He begins by making this confession. This is what he says. I react to the suggestion of a miracle or, for that matter, any thoughts about God, the spiritual, or the transcendent with skepticism and cynicism. It's my default setting. I am programmed to expect that the world is what I can see, touch, measure, and any thought or idea that runs against that expectation, is met with resistance. Programming is actually a great way to think about it. I have learned to see the world this way, and I don't have to think about it anymore. I don't think I'm alone. I believe that most people experience something similar. A subtle but strong resistance to faith and a skepticism toward anything that veers toward the supernatural. This way of seeing the world is what Charles Taylor calls disenchantment. A disenchanted world has been drained of magic, of any supernatural presences, of spirits, and God, and transcendence. A disenchanted world is a material world where what you see is what you get. It's not a world entirely without God or a world without religion. Rather, it's a world where God and religion are superfluous. You can believe whatever you want so long as you don't expect it to affect your everyday experience. That's the culture we've grown up in. That's the culture I've grown up in. I've never encountered a demon that I'm aware of. So, it's very tempting for me to believe what I was taught in my religion classes at Wake. And that is that this way of viewing the world that appears in the Gospels was a function of the apostles' culture. And that what was happening is these people either had a physical ailment like epilepsy or they had a mental illness, and those people thought it was demonic. But that wasn't the case because both Jesus and the disciples had a category for mentally ill people, and they knew the difference between somebody who was struggling from a mental illness and someone who was being dominated by the dominion of darkness. In Matthew 4.24, in the King James Version, this is where we get the English word lunatic, and it comes from this verse. Matthew 24 says, uh, 424, Jesus' fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments and those which were possessed with devils and those which were... And then this is the, where the English word lunatic came from. This is the English translation of the Greek word which meant moonstruck. And so in the ancient Near East, anybody who was mentally ill was called moonstruck. And so lunar is the name that we have for the moon. And so when they were translating this into English, they came up with the word lunatic for someone who was suffering from mental illness and those that had palsy and he healed them. So what I want you to notice is both Matthew and Jesus would distinguish someone who was under captivity to the transcendent spiritual forces of evil from someone who was mentally ill. And so what we have in our passage today is Matthew's eyewitness testimony, Mark's eyewitness testimony, Luke's eyewitness testimony, John's eyewitness testimony of the fact that Jesus believed and consistently taught that the universe includes spiritual beings who hate you, who you cannot see, who are actively trying to deceive you and take you captive, that you have a hidden enemy, and that Jesus has the power to rescue you from them. In Matthew 10, 5-7, this is how Matthew describes that. He says, These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter the towns of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of Israel, and as you go, preach this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, and drive out demons. It's simply inconsistent to think that Jesus was a great moral teacher and then ignore one of his central teachings about the personal nature of evil. If you're going to pay attention to what Jesus taught and what Jesus thought, you have to consider the possibility that he knows something you don't about the personal nature of evil. It's possible, maybe even probable, that we aren't encountering demons in America because they don't want us to. Hence the quote by C.S. Lewis on the front of your bulletin from Screwtape Letters. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. What Lewis is explaining here is that the demons are delighted by our materialism. They're delighted by how it makes us prayerless and how it makes us spiritually powerless because instead we'd rather try to uh, counsel or drug or imprison evil. We do anything other than pray about it. If we don't see evil the way Jesus did, then we tend to make one of two errors. You see them both in our passage today. The first is that we try to contain evil with our own strength. Verse 1 explains how this man's neighbors took this approach. They came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs, and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. So how did this man's friends and family members and neighbors respond to the evil within him? Well, first they did it with words, and then they did it with contempt, and then they did it with cords, and then they did it with chains, and finally with shackles of iron. Now, each of them would work for a season, but the evil in this man would eventually overcome their efforts— no matter how diligently these people work to contain evil their efforts consistently failed something similar can happen to us whenever we think that we can solve evil in ourselves in our families in our society simply with more counseling or more policing or the right laws or the right education and never, ever get around to praying. Several years ago, I saw a story about a man on court TV who was experiencing temptation to sexually harm people. At first, he tried to deal with it with counseling. He went to a non-Christian counselor who was helpful in helping him understand the reason that he was experiencing compulsions, but the counseling alone couldn't deliver him from his delight in harming other people it could never activate his conscience so he sought medical intervention he went to his doctor and he began taking medicine that was supposed to reduce his libido but it still didn't touch his desire to dominate other people there was something in him that power tripped on being able to oppress people around him And so eventually he was caught committing a crime and he confessed to several others. And as a result, he was excluded from society when he was put in prison. But the evil wasn't removed from him. He was not delivered from evil. He was just marginalized. Something similar is happening here. Verse 3 says that this man lived in the tombs And no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain. Because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles, no one was strong enough to subdue him. But how did that man get in this condition in the first place? Look again at verse 3. It says, "...no one was able to restrain him anymore." So he hadn't always been like this. At some point, he had been weaker. But the spiritual forces of darkness offered him access to a power that made his neighbors fear him. Which is the second error that we often make when it comes to evil. And that is we think we can control it. That we're going to be able to handle it. You see, this man had been bullied at some point in his life. He was weaker than his neighbors, and he had decided at some point in his life that he wasn't going to put up with that anymore, and he was going to do whatever was necessary to be sure that he didn't end up on the wrong end of the stick again. Now, having been bullied myself, I can tell you how tempting this is, right? I was the smallest person in my middle school, and one day in seventh grade, I ended up in a trash can in the parking lot, and everybody thought it was really funny, except for me. And what I left that, th- that encounter thinking is, that will never happen again. I don't care what has to happen, but that will never happen again. And I was willing to go to some pretty dark places to ensure that that was never going to happen again. And that's what happened with this guy. At some point, he had an I-never moment, right? That will never happen again, and he was willing to compromise himself to the spiritual dominion of darkness so that he could dominate his neighbors. (coughs) Evil always looks good at first. In Genesis 3-6, the original temptation says this about Eve. It says, The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. And so she took some of its fruit, and she ate it, and she gave it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. You see, all of us choose to imbibe evil because it works. Pornography makes you feel attractive. Binging makes you feel at peace. Yelling makes you feel in control, and cutting makes you feel. But what happens? Well, over time, the effects diminish. And so you need more and more of the evil in order to recapture that original feeling. And before you know it, you're no longer in control of it, it's in control of you. This is the a point of the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? Dr. Jekyll invented this formula because containing his evil as Mr. Hyde was conducive to the life that he wanted of public self-righteousness. He had this hidden darkness that empowered him to be publicly morally superior. And he would drink this potion to become Mr. Hyde at night. And then he would be Dr. Jekyll during the day until one day in his self-righteousness he achieved his goal and he spent an entire day without sin he was he was perfect in his own eyes all day long and at that moment when he took pride in his public perfection something strange happened for the first time ever he became Mr. Hyde without having to take the formula and from that day forward Dr. Jekyll had to take the formula to become Dr. Jekyll because Mr. Hyde had taken over. And the same thing happens to us. God describes this to us in Romans 6. He says, don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But thank God that although you used to be slaves to sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to righteousness. You see, the question isn't, are we going to be mastered or not? Everybody is going to serve somebody, right? That's the way humans are made. We're contingent Creatures. It's not good for us to be alone. We uh, are dust, and to dust we return. We are going to serve somebody. That's a given. The question is, how is your master going to treat you? This man's master wanted to kill him, but he couldn't see it. And so Jesus engages him in a conversation. Verse 6, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him. And he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. The man runs to Jesus, and Jesus begins helping him. He says, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. But what does the man do? Look at verse 9. What is your name, he asks him. My name is Legion because we are many, he answered him. And then, this is the strangest part of this, he earnestly begged him not to send the demons out of the region. He wanted the demons out of him, but he wanted them to be around. He needed a backup plan. He wanted he wanted to be kind of like on he wanted to be delivered from being dominated from by the demons, but he didn't want Jesus to get rid of them. Why not? Why would he do that? They are literally driving him to the grave. And the answer is for the same reason that we do, All right? In a very strange way, this man feels safer having evil spirits he's familiar with, close at hand, than he does unconditionally surrendering to the power of a God he can't control. In recovery, this is called white knuckling, or being a dry drunk. It's a state of self-deception where we want freedom from the consequences of our slavery to sin without the humility of admitting that we're powerless over it. And so, we want to take care of this ourselves. We want a private solution to a personal problem. But God doesn't offer us that. He offers us public solutions to personal problems because we're the problem. And so, we need to be delivered from ourselves and not just from our sin. Jesus understands the man's fear. And so, he loves this man enough to slow down this exorcism. This is the only one Jesus does this way. And he gives the man a visual picture of what the forces of evil are really doing to him. Verse 11, a large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. The herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying to this man, Hey, see? Do you see this? We live in a war zone. There are two kingdoms at war here. The kingdom of heaven and the dominion of darkness. The kingdom of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who loves us and gave himself for us. And the kingdom of the first fallen angel who hates us and cannot wait to destroy us. Jesus explained it this way in John 8. He says, Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. See, Jesus came to earth to save us from the things we've gotten hooked on. I don't care if you're hooked on prescription drugs or gambling or being right or exercise or being in control or the approval of others. Jesus can set you free. But you must come to Him and unconditionally surrender to Him. Only He has the power to control evil. And His solution... Is to remove it from your life, not to negotiate. Verse 14, "...the men who tended them ran off and reported it in the town and the countryside, and the people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs." And then they began to beg him to leave their region. Now, this is the most disturbing part of this passage. When the people heard what had happened and saw for themselves that Jesus had the power to do for their neighbor what they were powerless to do on their own, what did they do? Did they worship God? Did they throw a party Did they ask Jesus to come to town with them and heal all the other sick and possessed and oppressed and mentally ill people in their village? No. They asked Jesus to leave. Why? Well, because Jesus' ministry to this man had cost them something that they loved more than God and more than their neighbor. You see, this was in the days before banking. And so if you wanted to save your wealth, you did it by purchasing livestock. Pigs were their portfolio. And these guys were their portfolio managers. They were their stock brokers, literally, livestock brokers. (laughs) Jesus had just cured their neighbor, but had wrecked their plans for tomorrow. And in Luke 16, 13, Jesus warns us, no servant can serve two masters. Since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other, you cannot serve both God and money. Their reaction reveals who the Gerasenes were serving. The Gerasenes were enslaved to the demon Mammon, and they didn't even know it. They had been taken captive, not by being possessed, but by being hoodwinked. The same thing can happen to us. In Colossians 2.8, Paul warns his church, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. The Apostle John warns his church, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of one's possessions is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world, with its lusts, is passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains forever. You see, like the people of the Gerasenes, you and I fall into this trap anytime time we start depending on the world to give us safety, significance, or a future instead of Jesus. Anytime we start thinking the solution to our city's problems is more policing or private schooling or mandatory counseling or some kind of economic uh you know intervention instead of a willingness to love our neighbors the way jesus had loved us by sacrificially serving them as stewards of the grace of god we have fallen captive to a deceptive philosophy. So what does God want us to do instead? Well, He wants us to do what this man did. He wants us to consider a different master. Verse 2, As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. Verse 6, When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him. You see this man got two things right while he was still captive to evil. And it's this, he ran to Jesus and he knelt down. He needed a new master and he knew it. If we will do this, then we'll feel exactly the same thing that this man did, which is both attracted to Jesus and afraid. Look again at verse 7. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. A real encounter with the living God in the person of the resurrected Jesus is a deeply unsettling experience because he requires complete subjection to his will and he will not negotiate all right. Lewis again captures this beautifully in the story of Aslan and Lucy uh in Narnia. And the, the pevensies are in Narnia. They're hanging out at the beaver's house. And the beavers say, Aslan's coming. And they're like, Aslan, who's he? He's like, Oh, he's the king of beasts, he's a lion, he's the Christ figure in the story. And they're like, you know, well, is he safe? And the beavers start laughing, and they're like, No. Are you kidding me? He's the king. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's not a tame lion. He's wild. The living God's that way. When we encounter the living Jesus, he won't negotiate with us. And why not? Because he knows better than us the best possible outcome of our lives. And he came to give it to us. Verse 18 As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. Jesus did not let him, but told him, Go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. This is my favorite part of this passage. The easy and just thing for Jesus to do would have been to assent to everyone's request. To say, yes, I will leave the region, you idolatrous people. And yes, you, former demon-possessed man who came to me, you may now follow me, and we'll take your story on the road. And we'll go tell it to people who want to hear from me. But instead... He graciously sends this man back to the people he used to intimidate, who used to bind him with chains because of the harm that he was doing both to himself and to others, and instruct him to repair all those relationships by reporting to them just how much the Lord had done for him. And how did he do that Well, he did it by proclaiming what Jesus had done for him. Don't miss, this is one of those moments in Mark where Mark is making it clear that Jesus is God. He says, go and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And the next sentence is, he went and told them what Jesus had done for him. And so, because of Jesus' grace... This guy who had invited demons into his life to dominate his neighbors now knew that Jesus was the Son of the Most High God who had delivered him from evil and become his Prince of Peace. And he will do the same for us if we will meet him and kneel before him and obey him. And so he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him And they were all amazed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're amazing. We pray, uh, Lord, that your spirit would be upon us and that by your grace, um, you would deliver us from evil, grow us in grace, and help us to trust you that we might unconditionally surrender to your attempts to deliver us. For your glory and our good, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.